our study through the book of Second uh, Peter. We are in chapter 2 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and these guys will bring one right to your seat. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9 this morning. And I just want to reiterate, praise the Lord, praise God, Roe versus Wade has been repealed. Amen. Answered prayer for many, many years, and so praise the Lord for that. Second Peter chapter 2. Starting in verse 4, Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The title of my message this morning is Destruction or Deliverance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that it is to gather together in this place, to be able to be in your word, knowing, Holy Spirit, that you have something to say to each one of us here individually, Lord, and then corporately as a church. We thank you for the work that you're doing here in this fellowship, Lord. We thank you for the volunteers. I thank you, Lord, for the teachers downstairs that are teaching our children and speaking to their hearts, Lord, your word. And, and, and Lord, even at a young age, these children coming to know you as their Lord and as their Savior. And that's our prayer this morning as well, Lord. If there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again yet. Lord, would you especially touch their heart, help them to see their need for you, to surrender their life completely to you, find the forgiveness of sin and be born again today. We thank you for your word and for the power that it has to, to change our lives, Lord. Thank you for this time together. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever somebody speaks for a company or an advertisement is shown that represents that company, you expect that there's going to be an accurate uh, description of what that company is all about, what they stand for, what they're trying to sell. Well, it doesn't always work that way. Here's an example. Years ago, when Gerber Baby Food decided to market in the country of Africa, they decided they would use the same strategy they have used for years here in the States. You know, Gerber baby food, they have on the front of the jar the cute little baby Gerber, you know, the Gerber baby, you know, the cute little smile on her face and all that. So they thought they would use this cute little Gerber baby to put it on their jars in Africa. This was many, many years ago. What the Gerber company didn't realize is that in Africa, because of the very high rate of illiteracy and the fact that many people at that time didn't read, the companies would place on the labels pictures of what the content is on the inside. So you can imagine what it would look like to see a little baby on the front of a jar. You'd be repulsed by it. And so it didn't really work well. It was a wrong message that they were sending. Not a good selling point. Another one. When Chevy wanted to sell their Nova to Spanish-speaking countries, it didn't turn out so hot. Because in Spanish, Nova means it does not go. Not to leave Ford out, 
hoping to highlight its car's excellence manufacturing, Ford launched an ad campaign in Belgium that execs thought, hey, this is going to be great. Their campaign was, every car has a high-quality body. However, when translated, the slogan read, every car has a high-quality corpse. <laughs> Far from the image Ford wanted to portray. How about this one? The case of Coors Brewing Company. They wanted to use their slogan that was very successful elsewhere, turn it loose. But when it was translated into one Spanish-speaking country, it was read this way, suffer from diarrhea. (laughs) One more. Finally, there's the case of Kentucky Fried Chicken who was marketing in China and they wanted to use the slogan, finger licking good. But it didn't translate that way in Chinese. It actually said to them, eat your fingers off. Now, those are innocent mistakes. Babies aren't in jars. You can't sell cars that don't go, and you don't eat your fingers off. But the point is, it did not represent what the company was all about. In the same way, there are those who claim to speak for God, that they must represent God correctly, or Scripture will label them a false prophet. False prophets' words are like, uh, like false labels on the front of jars. They send the wrong message. They have the wrong information. Now, when it comes to the church, Peter tells us there are false teachers. Now, there are certain teachers out there that I would say are not false, but they're very weak. They pick and choose what they want to feed to their congregation. They're certainly not the whole counsel of God, only in parts that speak of prosperity or happiness and joy, never mentioning sin or repentance or even offering salvation. That's a watered-down gospel, if you even want to call it a gospel at all. And although their congregation may appear happy, They're certainly not healthy. But I also believe the problem in our culture is much, much worse than that because there are some spiritual leaders, movements, organizations that are feeding their churches what amounts to poison. And they're causing their congregations to appear to have life, but in reality never really come to life, but instead they remain dead in their trespasses and in their sins. So God doesn't take it very lightly, those who would purposely deceive His people. Well, here in chapter 2 of Second Peter, we see God's heart towards these false teachers. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first three verses of chapter 2 and the characteristics of a false teacher, how they secretly brought in destructive heresies, how they denied the one who bought them, and how they were motivated by greed. And if you recall, we left off in verse 3 with Peter telling us, for a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. In other words, he says, for a long time, it looks like they're getting away with all of this. It looks like nothing's going to happen. They're going to be here with us. But Peter's saying, listen, there's going to come a time when God is going to judge. See, Peter here sees no hope for these apostates. Their doom was sealed. His attitude is so much different, I think, than what we see today. You know, we had that, that push for tolerance. Oh, come on. No big deal what you believe. You know, all roads lead to God. And that's true. Our roads do lead to God, where upon arrival, you'll either be welcomed into heaven because you put your faith and trust in the only one that can save you, Jesus Christ, or you'll be turned around and sent to hell because you rejected what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you'll hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. Listen, judgment is going to come, especially to those who claim to be speaking and teaching the things of God, but are not. And Peter's going to make it very clear that these false teachers have forsaken the right way, which simply means they've gone the wrong way. And Peter says here that the Lord has reserved the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, verse 9. In other words, 
there is coming a day of reckoning, and, and these folks, they have a reservation for it. But we also know, Peter says in the beginning of verse 9, that the Lord has had to deliver the godly out of temptations. I love that. Thus, the title of my message this morning, Destruction or Deliverance. And that's how we're going to divide our study if you're a note-taker. Number one, God has reserved destruction and judgment. Number two, God has reserved deliverance and grace. First, God has reserved destruction and judgment. Now, in the first six verses, Peter gives us three examples that prove God has reserved destruction. He has reserved judgment. We're going to see the first one, the fallen angels. Secondly, the fallen world. And the third example, that of Sodom and Gomorrah. First, though, the fallen angels. Look at verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So what is Peter talking about when he brings up the angels who sinned? Well, over in Genesis chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, we'll put the verse on the screen, there's an interesting event that took place. Genesis 6, 4 tells us, there were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those are the mighty men who are of old, men of renown. That Hebrew word for giants is the word Nephilim, which literally means fallen ones. These fallen ones are the legendary figures spoken of in many cultures as giants. So where do these giants come from? Well, there's a couple schools of thought here. Some suggest that the term daughters of men refer to the descendants of Cain. But because the union of the ungodly daughters of Cain and the godly sons of Seth would not inherently produce giants, there has to be another explanation, something more, something different. Now, the term sons of God in verse uh, 4 of Genesis 6 is the word benai Elohim, sons of God, benai Elohim. Now, every time the words benai Elohim appears in the Old Testament, it is a reference to angels. We know angels are divided into two groups. You have the exalted angels around the throne of God, uh, you know, who do the work of the Lord, and you have the fallen angels or the demons. Lucifer was an exalted angel who led a rebellion against the Lord in heaven. And when he fell, he became Satan. He became the devil. Revelation tells us that one-third of the angelic host joined his rebellion, fell with him, and became demons. Now, I believe that some of these demons that Genesis 6-4 refers to and who, according to Jude, verse 6, God says the same thing about. Listen to Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode. He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, some say Genesis 6-4 teaches that these demons, these fallen angels, came to the earth and had sexual relations with the daughters of men that produced these giants. But I have a problem with that because Jesus said in Matthew 22-30 that angels, fallen or not, were not given in marriage. In other words, not capable of sexual relations. Now, what makes more sense is that these fallen angels, these demons, they left their proper domain and possessed real human beings, moving them to interbreed with the daughters of men. And in so doing, they produced a superior breed whose offspring were the giants as a result of selective breeding through demonic possession. Listen, we know demonic possession is real. Why would we not think it would happen back in the beginning? Now, since it was common prior to the flood to live, a person lived for over 900 years, this could very well happen. I mean, for example, Adam lived 930 years. 
Jared lived 962 years, and Jared's grandson, Methuselah, lived the longest in history, 969 years. Can you imagine that? That man, how old is he? 969. I don't know. But think about it. It'd be really easy to produce a race of giants over a few hundred years. Goliath, we know, was nine feet nine inches tall. Now imagine the, the evilness of a demon-possessed giant, 10 feet, 12 feet tall. I watched a video uh, the other day of this uh, man from Hong Kong. He's an MMA fighter, 7 feet 3 inches tall. And he's like, when he first got an MMA fighter, he was just, just pounding everyone. I, I mean, and they have a picture of this guy, and his foot's up in the air, and it's in this guy's face, and it just looks like this, just towering over this guy. That, man, that was probably what it was like with these giants. Just not only big, not only strong, but evil uh, to the core. And so again, it's these same demons that I believe are the ones being held for a special judgment according to Jude 6 and here, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Now when Peter says, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down into hell, that word for hell there is the word Tartarus. It's where we get our English word tartar sauce from. And these are, no. They're chained in jars of tartar sauce. Miserable place to be, horrible. Actually, the word Tartarus refers to a dungeon or a chamber. Maybe a special section of hell where these angels are chained in a pit of darkness, bound by darkness, waiting that final judgment. Now, this is the only place in the New Testament where the term is used. Now, again, before they are judged, I believe God is going to use them as part of his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world during the Great Tribulation period. And you can read about these demon locusts from the bottomless pit, Revelation chapter 9. Be that as it may, I don't think it's really necessary to try to understand every aspect of this verse in order to get the main point of the message. Peter's saying God judges rebellion and he will not spare those who reject his will. And if God judged the angels who in many respects are higher than men, then certainly he will judge these false teachers, these who are leading people astray. False teaching does not promise good prospects for its propagators. So, the first example of God's judgment that's going to come is going to come as just like it did for the fallen angels who didn't keep their first domain. The second example we have is in verse 5, the fallen world. Look at verse 5. We read that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So the second illustration that Peter uses is to prove that God is going to judge these false teachers. He says, hey, just look at the days of Noah. Peter says, God did not spare the ancient world. The ancient world is, is it's a reference to the time of Noah before the flood. See, the generations following Adam had become exceedingly sinful, exceedingly wicked. Mankind had grown worse and worse to the point where you read in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, that the Lord, Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Therefore, God acted in judgment. He intervened in the affairs of men. Peter says in verse 5, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. See, judgment came. The earth was corrupt before God, filled with violence. People were living in gross immorality, murder, cruelty, lust, injustice abounded. Sounds like our nightly news. We'll look at that more in a moment. But Peter says judgment is going to come just as God did not spare the angels who did not keep their proper domain and just as he did not spare those from the ancient world. 
God saw that men's heart were evil continually, so he lovingly decided to put them out of their misery. Thus the flood accomplished quickly and mercifully the destruction of their sin and perversion that would bring about inevitably. Then the last example. Peter gives us Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at verse 6. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So Peter's third example of God's judgment reminds us of the devastation that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells us that the Lord turned them into ashes. Their sin was gross sexual immorality. It was pride. Even today, the term sodomite has a connotation of gross and evilness and and perverseness. Peter's telling us, do not forget about Sodom and Gomorrah, how homosexuality flourished in that society. And because of that, God brought judgment upon them, completely wiping those cities off the face of the earth. Sodom was notoriously known for their sexual perversions and an aggressive homosexuality, but that was only part of the reason why God brought judgment on the city, on the people. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 and 50. It tells us a little more. It says, Look, that this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. Did you catch that? Pride, fullness of food, abundance of idleness. Sounds like a nation I know about today. I mean, this, this month alone, we celebrated Pride Month. We have fullness of food, and we have people all over the nation that just don't want to work. You know, we have these rainbow flags in the embassy in Kuwait. Maybe you caught this. The embassy in Kuwait, we flew, flew on the way rainbow flag to the country's disapproval and demand to take it down. And they're a Muslim country. And we said, no, no, we want to we promote tolerance. They, we refuse. Just about every channel on TV today, every advertising we see is promoting the sin of homosexuality. I'm told in Disney's new film, Lightyear, uh, they purposely put two animated women kissing in there. This homosexual kiss has gotten the movie banned in several Muslim countries, including Saudi Arabia, Indonesia, and the United Arab Emirates. But Disney, wanting to have China's movie market, has apparently edited that part out of the film for, for China. But when it comes to the U.S., full steam ahead, put their homosexual agenda even on our smallest of children. They said they would do it. They're doing it. We've seen public schools, resources, and lessons plans for those that want to teach about gender identity more and more becoming common. Seven states now require that curriculums include LGBTQ topics. You know what Jesus said, speaking about harming children? He said this in Matthew 18, 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus' words, Matthew 18, 6, If someone who's caused one of these children who put their faith and trust in Jesus, even at a a young age, to be pulled into darkness. It would be better off for them that they die with a millstone tied to their neck and thrown into the sea than what God has planned for them. Folks, this chapter is confirming over and over and over again that judgment is coming, judgment will come, it's only a matter of time. Now notice the scope of God's judgment in all three of these examples. He judged the fallen angels, so there's none too lofty to be judged. He judged the ancient world during the time of Noah because the wickedness of men was continuous and he judged Sodom and Gomorrah and their sexual sins. None are too base 
to be judged. Peter, again, his point is that as judgment came upon these people, God will judge false teachers. They will not escape. That's why Peter uses all these examples in verse 6 for those who would live ungodly. And he said in verse 9, God has reserved the unjust under punishment for the days of judgment. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus said in Matthew 24, 37, concerning the days of Noah, he said, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. See, like Noah, you and I are end-time believers. Noah lived before the flood, we before the flood of fire. Noah spoke of the coming rain, we speak of the coming rain of Jesus Christ. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of Jesus' return. What was it like during Noah's day? Let me give you four examples, four parallels between Noah's day and our day that we see in Genesis chapter 6. As I mentioned already, the first one in Noah's day, the wickedness of men was great and his thoughts were only evil continually. Again, a couple hours watching TV and you'll see that one fulfilled. Check that one. Number two, population explosion. Genesis 6, 1 says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. You know, again, back then they lived to be 800, 900 years old. There was probably 5 to 6 billion people on the planet just prior to the time of flood. Today we're at about 7.95 billion people. Check that one. As it was in the days of Noah, it'll be in the day Jesus is coming back. In the days of Noah, again, Genesis 6, 4 tells us there was abnormal, immoral sexual activity that was on the rampage. Today, too, we live uh, with a time of abnormal sexual practices. Things that, that were unthinkable a generation ago, but now are commonplace, accepted, even pushed and promoted. Today, preachers are told that they're just homophobic. Oh, you, just, you just hate homosexuals. That's the furthest thing from the truth. I do not hate homosexuals. I simply believe that the lifestyle choice, that's right, a choice, is wrong. And I believe in the Word of God that the Word of God condemned this lifestyle. But I also believe that we as a church need to be praying for ways to reach those caught up in this sin, just as we would those caught up in any other sin. We need to pray that their eyes may be opened to see the, the God who loves them and desires to free them from the bondage of that sin. So not only is a moral sexual activity rampant like it was in the days of Noah, but so is murder. You know, we're offering up our children to the God of greed, the God of convenience, to the God of money. Let me say this again. I absolutely rejoice with the answered prayer of Roe versus Wade being finally reversed on a national level. Praise God. That, that's awesome. But the battle is only half won. Because the decision on whether or not it's legal now goes back to the states. And I thank the Lord that, that Missouri was the first one after that ruling came out to ban abortion since the decision. Way to go, Missouri. Yeah, give Missouri a hand. <laughs> but we as Christians, we can't stop. We need to keep praying that it's banned in all the states as well. I tell my wife, half serious, that now God can pinpoint his judgment better depending on what states still practice abortion. But think about the death in the last 49 years that this national abortion law has caused in our nation alone. You know, since January of 1973, when the decision of Roe versus Wade was written, we have aborted, murdered over 62 million babies. That doesn't even include the babies that have been murdered in China or for the sake of population control or desire to have male children or other nations throughout the world. Hitler had nothing on us. He only murdered 6 million Jews. 
He could have learned a thing or two from Planned Parenthood. So we have murder that was common in Noah's day. It's common in our day. And this ties into the fourth thing that was common in Noah's day. Genesis 6, 11 says violence filled the earth. You know, violence, it's at an all-time high. The world we know is, 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 is racked by violence. It's a part of the very, very air that we breathe. Yet we're threatened by outside terrorism, but we hear in our own nation, mothers killing their own children, children killing their parents, kids shooting teachers, fellow classmates in school, elementary school children being shot to death by the mentally deranged and often demon-possessed individuals. And why we denounce violence when we see such horrific things in the news and the Hollywood elite and the far-left politicians wanting to take our guns away it's that same Hollywood that continues to produce movies and video games packed full of violence, people shooting one another, and we wonder why there's so much violence in our world today. You know, what does God's Word say about it? Psalm, 1, Psalm 11, verse 5, The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Folks, church, we shouldn't ask if God's judgment is coming. We should wonder why he's waited so long. But we know why, and Peter's leading up to that when we get to chapter 3, where he says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But Jesus did say, As it was in the days of Noah, right before his return and judgment come, it, it, it'll be the same here. And I would say we are definitely there. Also, one more thing Jesus pointed out that in the days of Noah, they were actually totally oblivious to the pending judgment of God that was about to happen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 38 and 39, Jesus said, For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. They were going on business as usual, not aware of the whole system was soon to go down beneath the waters of the flood. They were eating, they were drinking, they were giving in marriage until the day that Noah went into the ark. They didn't know anything was wrong until the flood came. How little our world today realizes how close we are to the day of God's wrath, to the the day of God's judgment. So Peter here tells us when it comes to false teachers, expect judgment, just as God judged the fallen angels, the fallen world, Sodom and Gomorrah, God is going to judge. So, what about the righteous? Is there any good news in this? Well, that's good news. Point number two, God has reserved deliverance and grace. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. Don't you just love that verse? When we see how bad this world is getting, it's good to know that the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of it. No matter how bad things get on this earth, God has promised that for us as believers, we will not have to face a judgment that will come upon us described in Revelation as the Great Tribulation period. Paul says it so well in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9 and 10, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, live or die, we should live together with Him. Let's go back and look at the Lord's deliverance and grace. I want to do that by comparing Noah and Lot and ask the question, who do you want to be more like in the days in which we're living in? Noah or Lot? God spared them both, but only because of his grace. Go back to verse 5. We read that God did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. And now in verse 7, we read the Lord delivered righteous Lot, who, oppressed by the filthy con- who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, 
For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. I think Noah and Lot are great examples of us as last days believers. We can learn from, from uh, both of them because both men lived at a time and in a place that severe judgment from God came. Noah saw and, and, and lived in a world that had grown so wicked that God declared that a flood would destroy it, and it did. And Lot lived in a city that had become so perverse that God decided to destroy it by fire. These two men were a lot like we are now, last days believers, living in the last days before the judgment of God came upon their cultures. Both were saved. Both were described as just men. But that's where the comparison ends. First, let's look at Noah. Verse 5, it says, God saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. Back in Genesis 6, again, we're given more details on Noah. We read there that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now understand, Noah was a sinner just like the rest of us. His sin separated him from God just like all of ours did. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Noah deserved to die like the rest of the world. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I love that phrase. When the rest of the world turned their backs on the Lord and wandered far from the Lord, Noah turned towards the Lord and found grace in his eyes. It's been said, if you look to the Lord with an eye of faith, God will look down upon you with the eye of grace. See, Noah experienced God's unmerited favor in his life. That's what grace is. Mind you, this story about two pastors who were on their way to Atlanta, Georgia for a large Christian men's gathering. One of them had never been to the South before. After staying in a motel overnight, they stopped at a nearby restaurant for breakfast. When their meal was delivered, the pastor who had never been to the South before saw this white, mushy-looking stuff on his plate. When the waitress came by again, he asked her what it was, and she replied, grits. To which he said, ma'am, I didn't order it, and I'm not paying for it. Sir, she said, down here, you don't order it, and you don't pay for it, you just get it. That's pretty much true at any Cracker Barrel. But, but, but that's just like the grace of God. You don't order it. You don't pay for it. You just get it. God's grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor upon your life. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. It's God's grace. So the first thing we know about Noah is that he was a recipient of God's grace. And after having God's grace in his life, we also read in Genesis 6, 9, it says there, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, Noah walked with God. So he's a just man. That is, he was justified by God through faith. He was perfect in his generations. Not sinless perfection, but a perfection of sincerity. He was faithful in his generation. He walked consistently with his God. But it also meant Noah went against the flow. He swam against the tide. He lived in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation, but he kept his love for God. In a time when it was popular to believe uh, in God, or, or, you know, a time when it was not popular, rather, to believe in God or walk with God, to stand up for the Lord. Noah was faithful in, in his generations. You know, it's easy for us as Christians when Christianity is popular you know, just to go along with the flow. But the real test of our faith is, is, is whether, you know, when it's not popular, when people are coming against the Christian faith, to swim against the stream, to stand up for your faith in Jesus Christ when no one else does. Listen, when we look to the, to the Lord, to Christ, and what he has done for us, and standing up for us, going to the cross, dying for our sins, knowing that we don't have to face his judgment, then we as Christians should not think twice about going against the flow, about swimming upstream. 
standing up for Christ in our generation. To be faithful over the long haul because Jesus was faithful to go all the way to the cross to complete his mission for me. Someone this past week posted on social media an accurate picture of what Jesus' body would have looked like after he had been beaten uh, with the cat of nine tails, the whip beyond recognition, and knelt to the cross. It's probably taken down by now because it was so graphic. It was disturbing. It was horrific as it depicted his back where you can actually see his rib cage through his torn flesh and ministered to him by, by that whip. Also showed whip marks over his entire body. But this post went on to say, as horrible as this was, even worse was the sins that he carried upon his shoulders. My sin, your sin. And as hard as life gets today, and as the difficulties we face, we must keep looking to the cross and remember what our Lord endured for us. You know, I think it would be so much easier if once we come to faith in Christ, immediately Jesus takes us home. Lord, I believe. Poof, okay, you're home. <laughs> I would love that. That would be awesome, you know. But you know what? That's what it's about. God chooses to use us. And, and I think sometimes it's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. But let, let, let me let you know, it's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish that counts. There's too many stories of, of believers falling by the wayside. Many people, they start out fast. Then when the going gets tough, they quit. You know, the Christian walk, it's not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon. And it's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish that counts. Noah walked with God, it says in verse 9 of Genesis 6. He lived in fellowship with God. He lived a life of communion with God. It was his constant care to conform himself to the will of God, to please God. To fellowship with God means to commune with Him, to spend time talking to Him and He to you. We do that today through getting into the Word of God, reading the Word of God, praying, hearing from the Lord, having that fellowship. Verse 22 of Genesis 6 tells us that Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. In other words, Noah was obedient as well. Although Noah had never seen rain, didn't know what it was, and he was ridiculed. He believed what God said and did what God asked. He built an ark. Noah's faith is seen throughout all of his, his story. He believed the word and he acted upon it. Listen to Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Noah prepared an ark for saving of his household. What's interesting to me is that if you check the genealogy of Noah, he began this project before he had a household, before his sons were even born. You know, they were born when Noah was 500 years old, kind of late to start a family, but the ark was completed when he was 600 years old. It took Noah 120 years to build it, so 20 years before his kids were even born, Noah was working on the ark. Built the boat, made rooms for his sons and their wives before they were even born. By faith, Noah was planning ahead. Lastly, back in 2 Peter 2, verse 5, we're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For the 120 years Noah spent building that boat, he was calling people to repent, calling them to turn from their sin. How many people got saved? Seven. Mrs. Noah and her three sons and their wives. Let that encourage you for those who are actively sharing your faith. You see, even with only seven saved, Noah still is listed in Hebrews 11 in what's called the Hall of Faith. Great men and women of faith are listed there. Now let's compare Noah to Lot. Let me say first off that Lot is not listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, Lot's epitaph 
could read, a saved soul but a wasted life. Understand, Lot did escape judgment, and Peter called him righteous Lot, that his Lot also found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Lot believed in Jehovah God for that reason. He is referred to in 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8 here. Let's read him one more time. God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from the day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Lot had faith in the Lord, but that was as far as it went. Remember his uncle Abraham was called a friend of God, but Lot had no title. Abraham, like Noah, walked with God, but Lot radically backslid. Let's look at his downfall. Four things that he did, and then we'll close. It all began with the conflict that came between Abraham and Lot's servant. As they realized it was time to separate, Abraham said, you know what, I will go one way, you go the other, so Lot, you choose where you want to go first. Listen to Genesis 13.10. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zoar. So the first step to Lot's downfall was an attraction to the world. Notice the phrase there, it says, that like the land of Egypt. We know that Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the type of the world. The plain of Jordan or Sodom and Gomorrah, where at that time it was the place to be. It was the capital of wealth and, and, and luxury and power and, and perversion. But it'd be like moving to the Mojave Desert and seeing Las Vegas in the distance and thinking, hey, that's where I want to live. Lot wanted to go and live in a place that was like the world. Perhaps a fun place to live, but a lousy place to raise a family. Great place for making a living, but a lousy place for making a life. This brings us to the second step of Lot's downfall. Lot moved near the city. Genesis 13, 12 reads, Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. So it wasn't good enough, bad enough rather that, that he would want to live on the plains near the city, but that he faced his, placed, faced his tent towards the city so he could see the city lights. Just want to be able to, to look to see the city. People have the same mentality today. I'm not going to participate in that. I know it's wrong. I, I'm just going to look. Oh, I would never commit adultery, but I just like to watch this movie that it's all about this person who had this affair with that person. I would never think about adultery, but I'm just going to look up an old boyfriend or girlfriend on social media and see what they're up to. It's not going to affect my marriage. No, let me tell you, it will affect your marriage. So three things for Lot's downfall. He was attracted to the city of the world. He moved near the city. And the next thing we know, he moved into the city. Genesis 14, 12 tells us that. He goes from being on the outskirts to living inside this wicked city. That's the way this sin works in our lives. Longing for, moving closer to your now, you're living in the midst. Now, he might have made excuses. Oh, it's not that bad. You know, it's more convenient. We're close to the grocery stores and there are all the restaurants, the bright lights, all the shows. You know, we've been going there all the time anyway. But you see, at this point, Lot is on the verge of being totally pulled in. Even though God gives him a wake-up call, he ignores it. And that's step four to Lot's downfall. He ignored God's warnings. King came, kings came in and besieged the city, and Lot and his family were taken captive, plus all of his goods. At that point, Lot should have realized, hey, this isn't good. I'm in the wrong place. I shouldn't be here. But that was the furthest thing from his mind. You know, God often gives us wake-up calls. You start to go down a path and something happens or someone says something and it's like, oh, you know, God's trying to get your attention. Don't go down that path. The question is, do we listen? 
We know that Lot was rescued by his uncle Abraham, but does, that, does he leave? Does he wake up? Does he stop? No, he goes deeper. Next thing we see for Lot, he's now sitting in the gate. That is, he's now a leader in the community. The gate is where the judges were, so Lot is now in the place of judging. Let me describe for you from Psalm 1-1, Lot's downfall, what he did. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That's what Lot did. He walked towards Sodom, standing long for Sodom. Now he's sitting in the seat of the scornful, sitting in the gate. Now do you think Lot was happy? Think, oh, finally made it here. This is great. Think it brought him joy? No. Answers back in verses 7 and 8 of 2 Peter 2. Lot was miserable. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. He was oppressed. He was tormented. That word oppressed means to be worn down to toil. See, Lot went to Sodom thinking he's going to be refreshed and blessed with abundance and the riches and the pleasures of the world, and he's left worn down, depressed, and tormented. And, and, and Paul, Peter says, rather, his soul was tormented from day to day. Here's the thing that we need to remember this morning. Lot lived oppressed and tormented by the sin of Sodom. But it was his own fault. He didn't have to live in that place. He chose to live there, and he was miserable. And that's the case for those who try to live with one foot in the world and one foot with the Lord. You have too much of the Lord to really enjoy the world, but too much of the world to really enjoy the Lord. What a miserable way to live. And we know the rest of the story. Angels show up and tell Lot, Lot, judgment's coming. Sodom and Gomorrah is about to be destroyed. So Lot goes. He gets his two daughters and their husbands only to have them laugh at him. He ends up taking his wife and two daughters with him to escape. But Mrs. Lot looks back and becomes a lot of salt and uh, a pillar to be exact. Tragic story. But what is true of Lot can be true of us if we try to live with one foot in the world and one foot with the, with, the, with the Lord. This world will impact our kids. This world will impact our family. But if we go against the grain, if we make a stand for righteousness, there will be a better chance of our kids doing the same thing. Lot's life is a tragic story. Yet the Lord called Lot righteous because he believed in the Lord. But he didn't walk with the Lord as he should have, as he could have. And as a result, you have a, a saved soul but a wasted life. So what, you say, at least he made it to heaven. Seems like he got the best of both worlds. No, not really. Again, remember what Peter says. He was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked and lived a tormented life. Instead of an abundant life, a joyful life that the Lord would have for him, uh, and you know, he was tormented. Now, you know, God's judgment for the lost, unrepentant sinner is going to come. It's just a matter of time. And we as Christians need to decide where we stand as we wait for Jesus' return. Are we going to live like Lot? Or are we going to live like Noah? The choice is ours. They both experienced the grace of God. But when they stood before the Lord, one had an abundant entrance, while the other got there by the skin of his teeth. God's people, as weak as they are, we will be delivered from judgment by the grace and mercy of God. Remember, God could not judge Sodom until Lot and his family were out of the city. In the same way, God will not send his wrath on this world until he takes his own people out and home to heaven. As I quoted already, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. Big question this morning we need to ask is, are you ready? Destruction or deliverance? Which side are you on? 
because verse 9 says the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Final thing here. If you're here and you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, understand. Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. And if you're against him, that means that you will face judgment because Jesus died for your sin. But if you don't accept that forgiveness, if you don't accept what he did for you upon the cross, then you have to pay for your sins. You've got to come to Jesus Christ and you're going to stand before him as we all are. And you're going to be without a Savior. Jesus went to the cross, died for your sins so that you can have that sin forgiven. All your guilt, all your shame, anything you've committed in sin up to this point, God will forgive you. And even afterwards, he'll forgive you if you come to him in repentance. But you've got to come to him and ask him to forgive you for sin. I encourage you to do that this morning. For us as Christians, battle's not over. We need to keep praying. We keep enduring. Keep, keep going against the stream. Yeah, it's great. We got a victory. Roe versus Wade. Great. Let's keep going against the stream. Keep praying. Keep moving. And God will do great things with us so we can have that abundant life that, that uh, uh, Noah had. Uh, or Abraham had, rather. It's Noah too. Both. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you that you're doing a work in our lives. And Lord, even though we blow it, even though we sin, Lord, you offer forgiveness. Lord, you wash away our sin. We thank you for that. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, they're not born again this morning. I pray that you touch them, help them to see their need for you, Lord. Help them to find the forgiveness of their sin and to live for you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, for us as Christians, and one sense that's our same prayer, Lord, we want to live for you by the power of your Holy Spirit. So help us not to look to the world and the things of the world to bring us joy, but help us to look to you. Lord, we know judgment is coming. We know it's right around the corner. So in these last days, Lord, would you give us this opportunity to stand for you, to to live for you, to help make an impact in the world and the time in which we live. Lord, we do again thank you for the reversal of uh, Roe versus Wade. We pray, Lord, for our states. We thank you for our state making that, that commitment first and foremost. We pray other states will follow. Lord, thank you for these folks. Bless, the, bless their day today. Touch them, Lord. Again, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they give their life to you this morning. Thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to give your life to Christ this morning, as soon as we're done here, can you please come up and talk to me? I'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible, let you know what it means to follow Christ. Let's all stand and do one last song together. Mm-hmm.